Qiang. I'm an editor of China Digital Times and professor in UC Berkeley Journalism School.、Uh, Martin Rees, Master of Trinity College and President of the Royal Society in London. I'm Jaydeep Prabhu. I'm the Nehru Professor of Indian Business here at Judge Business School, Cambridge.、Uh, Sir Martin, perhaps if we start、uh, with you, because you talked about the digital revolution and academia, and, and amazingly, academia is adjusting to the digital revolution, and, and very soon all these prestigious journals are going to be online. Well, of course, academia led the revolution. Of course,、uh, uh, the early development of the web, etc. But、uh, the point I was trying to make is that the、uh, New technologies allow tremendously wider participation in science and in higher education, and it's been a, a wonderful leveler of the playing field in those respects. Well, l- tell us a little bit about how academia led the digital revolution, because you had、uh, a- archived content, didn't you? You had free content, and, and you have a mixed model. Well, I think、um, the World Wide Web started, as you know, with、uh, CERN particle physics sharing. Large amounts of data and collaborating in big projects, and that was the、uh, the start of the concept, which led to the World Wide Web. And academics have, I think, been pioneers of many of the new technologies because it's especially important for them. And、uh, if we now move over to to China today and, and what is happening there, th- th- there's been a tension, hasn't there, between democratic freedom and the need of the state to control information. And yet, you painted an optimistic picture. Well, I'm I'm painting a picture a、uh, picture of how the Chinese what are netizens or citizens that. Using internet as a public space to express their voices and pushing the public agenda and largely increasing the awareness of human rights and freedom, democracy, those values in society, is actually happening in a, a grand scale. The Chinese state, of course, put all the resources and control on the internet, and still that is a sort of dominant factor of the the internet contents. However, the 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 presentation I'm giving. Is to say, this space is so contested that the internet giving the opportunity of Chinese population a op- opportunity to participate in politics in unprecedented way, and this is transforming the Chinese politics. Indeed, your presentation was called "River Crabs, Grass Mud Horses, and the Grand Firewall: Contested Space on the Chinese Internet." Just tell us that lovely river crab story. Uh, the river crab is simply uh, uh, in the Chinese language.、Uh, uh, it sounds the same pronunciation as harmony, which is a Chinese government slogan of building harmonious society. But、uh, in the reality, the Chinese repression also being justified by building harmonious society, therefore being ridiculed,、uh, ridiculed by the Chinese netizen called the river crab or river crab society. So river crab really is a critique to the government slogan, and it became a symbol of the. Censorship, same as grass mud horse, that came from the same pronunciation of a one vicious Chinese slang, but a、uh, curse. But being used now is a sort of rebellious symbol、uh, that against the government censorship, and both are popular symbols online. And yet, you have two extremely popular bloggers, don't you? The, the blogosphere would seem democratic. Well, it's it's more than two. Of course, there's、uh, thousands of those voices. I I, I told、uh, a couple of stories, but the blogosphere by large are m- far more liberal and uh, and 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 uh, mounted a powerful critique to the regime than any official media. So that's the given. The Chinese blogosphere is alternative to、so、public space in China.
And, and Jadeep, you brought in the world's poor, didn't you? How in, in the future the digital revolution is going to bring the poor into markets who haven't been accessible to those markets because the markets haven't been affordable in the past. Yeah, so about 4 billion uh, of the world's population, more than half the world's population, are left out of a lot of formal uh, services and products that we take for, for granted, whether they are in education, healthcare, financial services or energy. And digital technologies offer the opportunity or the possibility for companies to serve these markets in an affordable uh, and accessible way. And in, in terms of the mobile technology, that's going to be the big change factor, the big liberator, isn't it? You talked about Nokia and what they've been doing in the markets. Yeah, potentially the simple device of a mobile phone, which has now become quite radically affordable to the point where large numbers of people in uh, China and, and India and Latin America and Africa now have mobile phones, enables them not only to be able to communicate with others instantaneously and very cheaply, but also to get access to services that can be delivered on that platform, whether they are information to farmers on the price of crops in neighboring markets or uh, simple lessons in English or in arithmetic to their children or indeed um, uh, financial services like mobile money to people who are unbanked. And, and Sir Martin, it is extremely odd that in a way academia is connecting with these mass markets because you told the stories of, of how people may who were excluded have got into academia in the past those two lovely little stories at the end mm. but, but, but also how you just go online to, to go into a website that will produce all these amazing mathematical models today. Well the, um, the web empowers people you don't need to be in a special place to access huge bodies of data whether it's in astronomy or genetics and this allows far more participation. And, of course, education is spreading. Higher education involves literally hundreds of millions of people over the world, uh, many of those millions in places like India and China. And I think the fact that they all have access to the world's information and to uh, uh, the world's leading academics from other countries is going to be tremendously empowering for all of them. So I see the Internet as being hugely positive in its impact on uh, academia and therefore in economic development, which is fueled by innovation, which in many cases is linked to discoveries made in universities. And do you think, finally, that it will be changing academia itself if there are a need for the nation-state, if we can all... You know, is, is there a, a need to convene in a set place at a set time? Mm. Well, academia has always been more international. Even the Royal Society in the 1660s was international. But I think what is going to change is that uh, um, people won't need to get together in order to collaborate. We're seeing that many of the scientific collaborations involve people from many different nations and some in the developing world, some in the developed world. And this is only possible because we have the Internet, Skype and all these other cheap ways in which people can maintain contact and work together. And keep quality. And indeed. And the other point is that uh, the traditional way in which scientists communicate used to be the scientific journal, and now there are much more efficient ways and much quicker ways to communicate which supplement what we've had already. So it's very good news for academia, for teaching at all levels. And, and Professor Jacques, do you have concerns still about this contested space on the internet? When, when some, in China, when someone asked the question, what would happen if we had a, a, a Tiananmen Square now, you said the internet would be closed down. That was very revealing. Well, yes. Um, I think the internet, of course, it's not uh, just about empowering the people. It's also about surveillance. It's also also about control. It's all about propaganda. And But down to the, the, the most basic... 
when the coordinated collective action happens, empowered by such communication technology like internet and wireless, politically in China, we're going to see a crisis because it fundamentally is not fit into the current regime. And if that happens, we will see two possibilities. One is simply unplug the internet, and we'll see the traditional mode of crackdown. The second will be the politicians will use the internet and public opinion as their own platform. They will split, and they will using that communication platform to uh, uh, police the public. Uh, that could be for democracy, could be against democracy. Fascists can rise on the power by that platform as well. So we do not cannot simply predict that a, a, a internet facilitated communication will directly land on a functional democracy in China. But certainly, we hope that's the direction. That uh, uh, the society should, uh, would go. But one would say, how, however, sort of restricting the river crabs are. You've opened up people's minds. There's no going back. That's right. That's irreversible. And the public value and the culture and the political participation has been on the rise, and and that is irreversible. And it's largely done, uh, facilitated by this new technological. Uh, Platform. Shadeep, let's just bring you in finally. You might also argue that's the power of markets, that's the power of catering to markets, linking markets, and bringing in the world's poor. Yes, I mean, so you know, I give the example of the service to farmers, that not only improves their ability to earn more because they know prices of crops and can decide where they want to sell their stuff when and so forth, but it also gives them dignity because now they have more bargaining power. In an economic system where previously their lack of information actually made them highly disenfranchised and at a you know at a disadvantage when negotiating prices with middlemen who had the information, so it can improve their economic lives but also give them lives of dignity outside of uh, economics. Well, just finally, one short comment from you all, gentlemen, on, on just the power of the internet to change our lives and digital democracy. Is it a force for good? I believe it is because it uh, empowers people, gives them access to more information, and it's especially important for those who are otherwise deprived. If you just think of the contrast between uh, someone living in a traditional village, no access to books or information, and someone in India today with a mobile phone, the access to the internet, it's an amazing contrast. And to think this has all happened in 20 years is amazing, and it makes one wonder what we can look forward to in the next 20 years. And, and your revolution is a 20-year one too. Well, I think China is also going、uh, towards a more open, transparent, and 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 a more and more a, a, a accountable uh, society. Uh, regardless, the traditional mode of authoritarian regime、uh, continues, but in Chinese society, the growing awareness of、uh, their own rights and gain sense of dignity and freedom and empowered by technology,、uh, this trend will continue. So fundamentally, I have a belief to,、uh, I have a faith in the Chinese people themselves, just like people anywhere else. That uh, uh, with the time, that will build the society, which will guarantee the Chinese people the freedom and dignity. And internet is one tool of it. Judith, do you agree about the lessons for India? Yeah, I think in the next. 
20 years, we're going to see a revolution led by digital technologies that will help bring on board the 4 billion people who are currently left out of formal exchanges and formal solutions for the problems and the needs they have in, in the fields of energy, education, healthcare, and financial services. Okay. Jadeep Prabhu, Lord Rees, Kwan Shah, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today, The Digital Revolution and Its Futures, a symposium. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.